Now, last week, we looked at the Battle of Jericho. We saw that God met with Joshua before that battle to remind Joshua that he was not on Joshua's side. And that's because the story of the Israelites is God inviting them to be on his side. To be on his side in the unfolding of his great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for himself. And that is an invitation and a plan that is still made available to us today. But when God met with Joshua, he also gave him instruction on how to take the city of Jericho. He told them to do nothing but march around it for seven days and then yell really loud. Israelites did that, and the walls collapsed. And the Israelites went in and took the city without any difficulty. But God had told them more than just how to defeat the city. He also gave them instruction on what to do once they had defeated the city. God told them to utterly destroy it. Other than the precious and useful metals which were to be put in the treasury of the tabernacle, God told them to destroy everything and everyone else in that city, including all the people, men and women, young and old. We're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning because to us that seems unexpectedly harsh, even brutal. I think it's hard for us to accept that this kind of a command could come from a God who we know to be good. Now, I can't promise you that I'm going to be able to fully resolve every question and concern that you may have about this command, but at the very least, my intent is to help you understand this command a little bit better and about some of the other things that were going on that may not be so obvious on its face. We're in the midst of a series, a preaching series from the Old Testament book of Joshua. This is a book that tells us about how the Israelites entered and then claimed the land of Canaan. This is a book that shows us how God fulfilled one of the great promises that he had made to Abraham, the promise of a great homeland for all of his descendants. This is a book that God designed to still speak to us today. But this is also a book in which God commanded his people, the Israelites, to drive out and destroy all the people who were living in Canaan at that time. And not to, just to displace them, but actually to kill them, men and women, young and old. So this morning, we're going to look a little bit more closely at this command we're going to see when and how and why they were to do this. And then we're going to discover that even in a command like this, there is still good news for all people, even for Canaanites. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you uh, or Bible app on your smartphone or tablet, I invite you to grab one of those red Bibles in front of you. 
And if you're using one of those red Bibles, you will find Joshua 6 on page 336. Joshua 6. This command that we're going to talk about this morning, that I'm going to talk about this morning, is sometimes called or sometimes referred to as the ban, in that it banned the Israelites from taking any of the spoils from this battle at Jericho. But that isn't really an adequate way to describe this command, because God is not just arbitrarily saying to the Israelites, you just can't have any of this. There's actually something bigger, more significant going on here. And not just here in Jericho, but in all that God is planning to do with his specially chosen people in the land of Canaan. And so let's look again at what God tells Joshua and the Israelites to do at the Battle of Jericho. Uh, Here is how Joshua instructs the people. So this is Joshua 6, and I'm going to be starting in verse 16. The seventh time around... When the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that are in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. And so here's what the people did, jumping down to verse 24. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who were and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men that Joshua had spent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, this Hebrew word that lies at the center of this ban from taking any spoils is best translated, depending on its context, as to devote to the Lord, to devote to destruction, or to completely destroy. And so what it conveys is a command from God to fully devote something to him for his exclusive use, usually through its complete destruction. And this is exactly what we see here at Jericho. Everyone and everything in Jericho was to be devoted to God through its complete destruction. People, livestock, goods and structures, everything. Only two things were spared from being destroyed and burned. The precious and useful metals, and then Rahab and her family. Precious and useful metals, they were not destroyed, but they were still fully devoted to God. They were placed in the tabernacle treasury. As for Rahab and her family, well, this is actually where we get to see the good news. But we'll come back to that a little later. Now, as we seek to understand this command, 
It's important for us to recognize that neither Joshua nor the Israelites were surprised when this came up at the Battle of Jericho. Because even before they had entered into the promised land, God had already told them that this is in fact how they were to conduct themselves once they entered the land. Moses had actually given them instructions about this before he had died, before his death. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses had said to the people, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites and Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. There's that term. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So as the Israelites were preparing to enter the promised land, or were approaching the promised land, rather, now for the second time after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, this time they were actually going to enter it, Moses explains to them that God expects them to both defeat and to destroy this Canaanite population that they would face once they crossed the Jordan River. In this text that I just read for you, we see first of the first of the two reasons why they are to do this. The first reason is this. The Canaanite people and culture represented a real and present danger to the Israelites. The chief danger here was that the Canaanites and their culture would ultimately draw the Israelites away from their devotion to God. Canaanites had their own gods whom they worshipped, and while they generally were pretty comfortable with simply adding additional gods to the pantheon that they worshipped, this is something that was absolutely prohibited by the God of the Israelites, by the God who's revealed to us in the Bible. And that's because our God, Yahweh, is the one true uncreated God who is the creator of all things. He's the one that the Bible describes as God of gods and Lord of lords. And so to allow the Canaanites to live and persist in this land would inevitably tempt the Israelites to compromise their exclusive devotion to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Now, what's interesting here is that this command to destroy anyone who would tempt God's specially chosen people to worship other gods was not only to be applied to the Canaanites. It was actually also to be applied to any Israelite or any Israelite community that would also encourage others to worship other gods. We see this in Deuteronomy 13. We see that it's applied to Israelite prophets. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet then says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God. 
you must purge the evil from among you. This was even to be applied to friends and family members. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. It was applied to entire cities and towns in Israel. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely. There's that phrase again. Both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all of its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt, and none of the condemned things are to be found in your hands. Sounds just like Jericho, doesn't it? And so this is a command that actually was applied to both Canaanite and Israelite. Anyone and everything that would entice God's specially chosen people to worship other gods was to be fully devoted to God through its utter destruction. But this command that God gives them is not just about purity of worship. This is a command that's also about judgment and justice. Consider what it says in Deuteronomy 20. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. Again, that phrase. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. I think if you look at this text, one of the things that you will notice is that the concern here is not just that the Israelites will worship other gods. God is also concerned here that the Israelites will begin adopting Canaanite culture and that they will then begin living like the Canaanites. See, at this point in history, Canaanite society and culture had come to reflect the very worst aspects of the gods whom they revered and worshipped. They've been described, their culture at this point has been described this way. Canaanite fertility cults are seen to be more base than elsewhere in the ancient world. The faith of the Hebrews was continually in peril of contamination from the lewd nature of the worship of immoral gods, prostitute goddesses, serpents, cultic doves, and bulls. 
El, the head of the Canaanite pantheon, was the hero of sordid escapades and crimes. He was a bloody tyrant who had dethroned his father, murdered his favorite son, and decapitated his daughter. These Canaanite cults were utterly immoral, decadent, and corrupt, dangerously contaminating, and thoroughly justifying the divine command to destroy their devotees. See, by the time that the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, Canaanite worship and culture had devolved into such profound immorality and evil, all of which was being reflected not only in their worship but in their lifestyle, that what God commands the Israelites to do here is an act of his judgment and justice on the Canaanites. In other words, what God is doing here, he's not just turning this land over to the Israelites. What he's also doing here is he's using the Israelites as his instrument of divine justice, divine judgment in response to the ever-worsening sins of the Canaanites. In fact, hundreds of years earlier, hundreds of years before this, God had actually predicted that this is what was going to happen. Back in Genesis 15, God reiterates to Abraham the great promises that he had made to him, including the promise that the land of Canaan would become the promised homeland of his descendants, just not yet. After God describes for Abraham how he's going to rescue his descendants, his people, from their slavery in Egypt... Listen to what God then says to Abraham about the people living in the land of Canaan. It's in Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. He's talking about Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, again talking to Abraham, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, meaning Canaan, because Abraham's in Canaan when God says this. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached their full measure. So what God is saying is that in Abraham's day, things had not gotten quite bad enough yet for God's judgment to fall on the people of Canaan. Not yet. Which means that there was still time and opportunity for them to change their ways. But Yahweh, knowing the future, he knew that they would not. But even so, he still withholds his judgment until the people of Canaan had fully earned it. And when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River some 400 years later, God's, patient with the Canaan, God's patience with the Canaanites had now run out. And so Yahweh commands the Israelites to fully destroy the Canaanites. What I hope you can see is that this is not just simple genocide, nor is this Joshua's nor Moses' territorial ambition at play here. 
What we have here is Yahweh keeping his promise to Abraham and Yahweh also unleashing righteous, holy judgment on people who were refusing to recognize and honor his rightful claim over them. See, all of creation belongs to God, belongs to Yahweh. That means that all of creation owes its devotion and its allegiance to him. And that's just as true today as it was back then. While the command to Joshua and to the Israelites to devote the Canaanites to God through their complete destruction was limited to a specific situation, a specific time, and a specific place, the underlying warning to us here is not so limited. In other words, neither the Israelites nor anyone else currently has this kind of a mandate from God today. I want to make that very clear. But what this command that God gives to the Israelites shows us about the seriousness of sin and the sternness of God's judgment on it is very much still true today. See, this is not just something that we see in the Old Testament. This is also something that's taught to us in the New Testament. Consider this text. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Those words could have so easily been written to the Canaanites living in the 14th century B.C. But they weren't. Those words were written to Christians in the first century. And more significantly for us here this morning, they were then preserved by God for us living in the 21st century. These verses in the first chapter of Romans, they remind us that everyone everywhere owes our devotion and our allegiance to God. And claiming ignorance doesn't excuse us. Because the very existence of creation sufficiently proves the existence of a creator. A creator to whom we owe ultimate devotion and allegiance. But of course, none of us have been 
so deeply devoted and faithful to him as we should. We're reminded of this in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're reminded of the consequences of this in Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death. My friends, in a real sense, we do not find ourselves in any better of a situation than the Canaanites did when Joshua and the Israelites first entered into the land of Canaan. The judgment and wrath of God is coming. If not in this life, definitely in the next. And we have no ability to resist or to escape it except one. The one thing that we can do, as long as there is still breath in our lungs, is we can change our allegiances. Remember Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, the sole survivor with her family from the Battle of Jericho? She was saved because she changed her allegiances. She saw the futility of continuing to trust in the ways and in the gods of her people. And so instead, she pledged her love and her loyalty to Yahweh. And in doing that, she was saved. I think one of the most wonderful and interesting ironies of the story of Jericho is that ultimately, every single one of its inhabitants were devoted to God. Most of them through their utter destruction. But for one woman and her family, they were devoted to God by changing their allegiances. And then by grace, were saved. And that, my friends, is a salvation, the only means of salvation that remains open to us today. A salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. God's instructions to his people to devote this, the Canaanites to him through their destruction uh, is, I mean, there's no getting around it. There is, it is a chilling, it's a sobering command. It is hard for many of us to accept. But for us to think of it as a sin of genocide is to completely misunderstand what's actually happening here. See, what happens here is not a sin. This is actually judgment for sin for centuries of sin that had been left unchecked and unrepented of. Judgment that we will similarly find ourselves in under one day if we don't also repent of our sins and change our deepest allegiances and pledge our love and our loyalty to God before all others. See, this is the good news that we focus on every Sunday. Though judgment for sin is coming, Jesus is the true rescuer king that we all need and long for. He's the son of God who became one of us. He came in order to show us how to truly live. And then he died in our place. He let the righteous judgment and wrath of God fall on him so that it doesn't have to fall on us. He died so that we get to live. 
And then he rose so that we too can live again. That's the gospel. That is the good news. And that is the only message that can truly save us. Before I close in prayer, one thing. If that gospel message is a message that you have never personally responded to, you can this morning. And I'm going to make it really straightforward and simple, easy to remember, and I hope to understand. I'm going to make it as simple and as straightforward as A, B, and C. It begins with A, begins with acknowledging. Acknowledging that you are a sinner who is in need of forgiveness. B, you got to believe. You got to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God who became one of us. And then C, you got to commit. You got to commit to following him as your true rescuer king. Acknowledge, believe, and commit. And just like Rahab, just like me, you will be saved. Let me pray. Father, we praise and worship you for your glory, for your holiness, and for your faithfulness. Thank you for your great unstoppable plan that began in the garden and is going to come to fulfillment when you make all things new in the new Jerusalem and in the greater promised land of the new heavens and new earth. Jesus, we pledge our love and loyalty to you as our rescuer and as our king. Thank you for becoming one of us in order to show us how to truly live and then dine in our place for our sins. We thank you for taking for us the judgment and wrath that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and accepted by God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to use these scriptures, even these harder texts, to remind us of who you are, who we are, and how it is that you want us to live in this world. Remind us, help us to see that even in warnings of judgment, there's also the good news of the gospel. Fill us with all the grace and wisdom and faith and love that we need in order to live well in this beautiful but broken world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.